Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Is wearing his heel. You know, there were periods where I was ranked number one in the world and I would be just really unhappy. Like, there was just nothing there. I could, I could not physically get, I couldn't emotionally get up for that race. And I remember the doors opening and, you know, it was a great crowd and I had all my friends and family there and I just thought... All of the big superstars were there. Carmelo, Anthony, LeBron, all of these guys. And they're like sitting in the, you know, this huge dining room, it's like an airport hangar, massive unit. Um, and LeBron's sitting back with his feet on the table with a cigar and stuff like that. I think I've been in an indoor pool two or three times maximum since I finished. On this episode, I'm joined by an Olympian, a silver medalist winning swimmer, a Scotsman. It's the great, the wonderful Michael Jameson. Mate, class to have you. Thanks Michael. for having me. Yeah, brilliant. We were just talking before we went live that I'm a swimming fan. I've always been <laughs> a fan of swimming. And I was talking myself up saying that I used to be a swimmer back in the day and that my lad is a decent swimmer now. But can you just give us a snapshot just for the millions of listeners who might not have stumbled across Michael Jameson before? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy how long ago it was now. Um, so I, I swam full-time, was was super lucky. I had a, a decent pro career and, you know, I guess my kind of highlight reel was 2009-10 through to 2014. So, I mean, I guess for Olympic sports, I was so lucky to get a home Olympic Games and then for me, a home Commonwealth Games in Glasgow two years later. So looking back on that now, it's probably the best time ever to be involved in a kind of minority sport. So, yeah, fun memories. Did it feel like that at the time? And I'm asking that because I've always found swimming really, really interesting because of the mechanism of it. And again, I used to swim, so I know that... The mechanism is you're looking down for the majority of your life while you're training on your own. So when you were in it, was it the best time, the best moment, or was it extremely tough? I mean, I guess, I guess like any sport, anyone that's been lucky enough to compete at, you know, at the sharp end in, in their sport would say it's very up and down. I would imagine. You know, I think anyone I've come across has kind of shared in that mentality. When it's when it's good, it's incredible. It's brilliant. You know, you you feel super lucky to to have that as a profession. But when it's not going your way, if there's injuries or there's a bit of trouble you're running into or you're off form, it's it's a pretty lonely existence, really. Because, I mean, you know, you you have to be, 
you know, pretty regimented. You know, you have to make choices or I guess depending on your mentality, you make choices that will either benefit your sporting performance or you're kind of, you know, of the other mindset where you're just kind of trying to take it all in, experience everything. So I was definitely more the former uh, and just, you know, really lost myself in it and became, you know, really obsessed by it. But, you know, that's maybe a more negative outlook, but the positive outlook on that mentality and those behaviours are that's kind of what got me the results I got. So it's um, it's kind of chalk and cheese. And that's what it is. You have to have a certain mentality to do that and there'll be huge positives around that but as you know I know a little bit of there are negatives in terms of your general life being a human being walking the planet out of the pool yeah I mean it's just it's it's every day isn't it I mean I was nine ten years training 30 35 hours a week it's a huge commitment and even if you were willing to make choices that you know you were trying to balance other areas of life you're too burst to be able to do it anyway. So, you know, you're kind of thrown into that. But no, like I, I just, I always, always wanted a career in sport. Always. I mean, my first memory of that was uh, sitting up with my old man watching the Olympic Games in Sydney, you know, in the middle of the night watching it with him. And I was only 12 years old. And I remember thinking with 100% certainty, this is the life I want. I mm. want to be in pro sport. And, uh, you know, managed to do it. So... Uh, really, really great memories, and I guess the travel aspect. I mean, I'm guessing you'll be the same. That's one of the best parts of it. You just see so many different uh, places in the world, sampling different cultures, and you know experiences that, without a doubt, I wouldn't have had. You know, had I not been involved in sport. So, especially as you get a wee bit older as well, you know, a few years removed from that kind of sport and arena, uh, those memories kind of just appreciate and value a bit more. Yeah, it is hard when you're in it for whatever reason. Maybe it's the age as as young men when we are in that elite environment, taking it for granted, even though we've worked so hard to get to that point. But I suppose it's a, just a moment in time. Maybe it is the age. Maybe it's because performance before really absorbing the experience being the number one, and especially for you in a single-person solo sport. For yeah. me, I could hide behind my team. I could have a little bit of crack, you know, like you could play up a little bit, play the fool and <laughs> enjoy them moments being together. But I imagine being on you, I mean, it is a t- there are, there's a team element to it, yeah. I guess, with what you do. It's a funny sport because, you know, everything before you step on the block for your event it is fairly team-based. You know, you're part of a, you're part of a team day-to-day for the most part, you're doing the same sessions, you're doing the same content. So you're doing, you know, four hours plus a day in the water with 10, 12 others. You're doing an hour and a half in the gym. Um, so you've always got that kind of team interaction. But as as you mentioned earlier, when you're actually doing the motion of swimming, then it's immediately switched off and, and you're just on your own. So there's a lot to be said about that, though. There's... Um, there's a really positive kind of shared psychology in that environment. And I guess that this was a little bit different for me because I was never really involved in team sports. Played football and stuff as a kid, but to no to no level and I didn't do it, you know, old enough to understand those elements. But um there's a real shared psychology there that you know everyone in the pool at that level who's willing to do that much training and put that much commitment into it. You know, there's a lot of shared belief there and I think 
you know, from a team perspective and that element, you really jump on that and, and try and kind of let that grow and kind of rely on those guys to get you through to the, the day-to-day. Mm. We both live in Scotland now. Maybe I'm thinking, be more outdoors, chatting about outdoor sports, rugby, in the pissing, down rain, even football to a degree, either way, people get out there. But because the swimming pool is indoors, do you think that's what pushed you more? Than being on a track, or I mean, were you gifted to sw- like was swimming from an early part, being in the pool? Uh, yeah, I was, so my old man played football, uh, and he played well. I guess like anyone, the kind of late seventies, early eighties, it was kind of semi-pro at any level. <laughs> Proper football though, yeah. especially in, was it in Scotland? Yeah, Fuck. yeah. So um, you know, played a lot in the kind of first division up there for teams like Aloha and Stenhouse Muir and remember when the shin guards were like that thick and <laughs> Is it was he hard? All the way up. Well, he likes to think so, but he must uh, have been. played as a centre forward and had a perm and stuff. Oh. So he's uh so I I mean I grew up playing football. You know, that was always a sport of choice in the house. But yeah, for some strange reason I think around kind of eleven, twelve I had the opportunity to go to like a kind of sports specific school for high school. I mean, that's quite young to be making that kind of choice, but it wasn't swimming specifically that kind of drew me to that. It was more a case of, well, I won't be doing extracurricular subjects like music, drama and art. Instead, I'll be training in the pool, in the gym, getting a kind of introduction to sports psychology and sports nutrition. And it was more that that kind of pulled me towards towards the sport. But I think from that age, even though I was so young, uh, you know, that was the kind of catalyst to, to really uh, specialise in swimming. And, you know, when I think back to that now, that is crazy young to put all your eggs in, in mm. one basket. Um, but I just, I loved it. You know, that was, you know, those kind of high school years. I mean, I was up at 20 to 5 and I was home at quarter to 8 in the evening. And it was every day travelling to the pool, from the pool across the city to school, training during the day. And then training afterwards, so I mean, it was a hell of a regimen I was following, but uh, I loved it, absolutely loved it. For a sport, and this isn't me being down on the sport, but for a sport that financially, unless you are a Phelps, maybe you can share, wouldn't have a huge amount of reward. So for you, it's about the performance element and winning, I suppose, because you, we were chatting about my lad before. He he's swimming now. He's in the pool Tuesday. Monday, Tuesday, mornings, Friday, and you have to be all in. Like he, I can see he's all in and he's got it. And at some point I'm going to have to say, you know, like you go all in on this. This is like, this isn't LeBron James style. This isn't like Ronaldo <laughs> kind of money. This is like you're doing this for you to become yeah. a winner, to become a champion in the Olympics. And we'll get onto the, the the margins around that as well, which are crazy yeah. when I look at you as well. But like, as in, it's a big old commitment for. Am I right in saying that? Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's the same for a lot of Olympic sports. Swimming, in terms of the the sort of funding and support you get through, you know, we we're a lottery funded sport, so UK Sport have a pot of cash that's divvied up across you know, the best performing Olympic sports from the previous and hopefully future Olympic Games. And swimming's obviously, you know, we've done quite well the last few Olympic Games. You know, London actually wasn't great, but, you know, obviously Rio and Tokyo were amazing for swimming. Um, You know, in that period and in the lead-up to London, 
because it was a home games there was there was a huge amount of support and I guess opportunity because you know out so a lot of a lot of swimmers you know for example the top guys in the UK that are you know on the world championship teams on the olympic teams you know you you make a living but there's there's you make a living based on being a full-time athlete and no more you know there's there's not much else there but if you're lucky enough to get a medal at you know the global competitions if it's a world championship or or an olympic medal then there are opportunities there to to get some you know commercial support through sponsors and some opportunities like that so again for me on you know reflecting on my career i was super super lucky i never won anything <laughs> i never won anything i managed to make a career out of it so you know very very grateful for that you want a silver do you see that <laughs> silver medal in the commonwealth games yeah. in 2014 do you not see that as winning something or well, is that the really old school thing in you that says it, it's gold or nothing? No, I no, I do. It's, I mean, uh, I kind of I joke about it now because it does it does take a long time for you to kind of say you won a silver or a bronze or whatever, you know. But uh, you know, I just joke about that now because I was I was you know I was never a champion. That was always obviously the goal, and you know the margins in swimming are are so fine, and I always you know always had questions about what what is the difference. You know what? What separates gold and silver when the margin is that small? It's not training and preparation. It's got to be psychological. It's got to be, you know, other elements like that. There is no way that, you know, when you're looking at a tenth of a second or less than that, that someone's trained harder than you over a four, five, six-year period. It just doesn't work like that. So, uh, yeah, I always, I, I guess, I always had questions around that. But um, did you find an answer? No. <laughs> just on that, no. though, and I, I just, to be specific, I had to write this down. So 12th, I don't even know what this number is. So between yourself and gold, so between gold and you winning silver was 12th yeah. hundredths. Yeah. So what is that? Is that a... That's, that's hat, yeah. A is fingernail. A fingernail. A fingernail. Yeah. The, so. that, this is it, like, as in this for me... The psychological element to that, and you see it in sprinting, right? And maybe that's why it is so exciting. And when you do fast sports, when there is that mill, it's not even a millimeter. I, I kind yeah. of it's twelve hundredths of a second, which you don't even know what is. That's the difference between a silver and a gold, or what you perceive as being a winner and not. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's so close. But actually, the funny thing about that is. Um, so in London, the the Hungarian athlete that won gold, so we both went under the previous world record time, which was really cool because that was always a kind of, uh, you know, obviously a bit of light, a bit of a line in the sand. You wanted to be the fastest in history, and you know, uh, at at the time, people kept referring to myself and Daniel as having a rivalry, <laughs> and I remember always having this running joke with him that. You know they were calling it a rivalry, but I never beat him once because <laughs> he was um, he was world cha- reigning world champion, Olympic champion, world cup champion. You know he'd won everything twice. And he's a bit of a legend in in the sport, so I was always just kind of chasing his tail. But you know, funnily enough, when I look back at the the times that we were swimming, you know it was two hundred breaststroke. We were always around two minutes and seven seconds, and you know, even now, this summer, 
that last summer at you know the Olympics and 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 the major events this year, you know that time's still competitive. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, if you were half a second off that for swimming two eight zero or something, it would be like the end of the world. You know, do that now, I'd still be top three, top five in the world. So it's um, it was great. It was it was a really 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 cool time to be you know traveling the world, racing these major events and kind of going head to head with him. But yes, it's funny that it was always referred to as a rivalry because never once did I beat him. <laughs> did he give you any trash talk or anything? Or no, he's, uh, nah, he was a kind of steely-faced Eastern European. You yeah, know, they really, are, didn't they? Didn't really get much from him. But <laughs> mm, because I do, again, watching my lad, and there's a bit of music going on now, There's it's quite high energy. And I will never tell him this, not yet anyway, but I'm like, it's the mind... And again, it's easy to say this as I don't want to call myself an athlete when I'm sat here with you, but <laughs> apparently I was. But the the mental side, I know you're big on this. I've heard you speak about this before, but surely a bit of trash talk in swimming. Like that could be the, what is it? I'm going to look down again, the, the 1200th yeah. of a second <laughs> yeah. just to make them slip or just question themselves, like whatever, it, just something. Yeah. Is there no trash? Like with Phelps, is it, was he into the trash talk or was he too far in front? Nah, there's, I think the swimmers are too polite. There's, you know, yeah. just too polite. There's no, there wasn't, there's not really anyone who's like a real character. And actually, I, I think that's one of the reasons why swimming kind of hasn't made that step up between being an Olympic favourite. You know, everyone watches the swimming during the Olympic Games. But in those three and a half years, four years in between, Nobody cares about it. 100%. I think there's a market, if that's the word. This is with my creative hat on, that you could have someone coming in. Like yeah. In, yeah like, I was going to say like in darts, but I, I think darts has got the opportunity to have someone that's a really good-looking <laughs> bloke in really good shape who yeah. could make a fucking killing yeah. in darts. I look at swimming like Kyrgios, Nick Kyrgios in tennis has disrupted. Not that tennis needed to disrupt him, but... That kind of bad boy. Not that I want yeah. my lad JJ to be that bad boy. You know, just come in and like just give a bit of shit on the. Yeah. Because you you don't really see the personalities, do you? You got your goggles on, your cap on. You know, you finish your race, you get fifteen seconds with a mic in your face when, you know, you're still blown from the race, and that's it. You don't really have that connection to the athlete or finding out, you know, their story or you know how their form is and all these technical elements that. You get in other sports, but maybe that's it. Maybe your maybe your boy will be the future of the sport. I've said it to the message, and she's like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, you know, like TikTok, and he keeps talking <laughs> about his black mamba uh, mentality and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, do I get him to put? I can't. I just I'm <laughs> I'm too nice to do that. But one other thing as well, even at his age group, but more so at the highest level, when you sit, like I saw Adam Peaty with his shirt off, the shape of the swimmers. You talk about athleticism and athletes, but aesthetically, a lot of fucking superheroes. <laughs> Ripped, aren't oh. they? I mean, PT is shredded. He, he's, he's got bigger and bigger though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, what does he swim? He's so he, He's a well. breaststroker as well, yeah. yeah. More the kind of sprint events, but, you know, I mean, credit to him. He He's, um, he's kind of changed the way those events are swim. You know, he does the 50 and the 100 breaststrokes, real sprint events. Um, but he is much bigger traditionally than than, than swimmers have been. Um, Looks like a bodybuilder. Yeah, he's so jacked, isn't he? But I think it's, it's, there's been a wee bit of a shift in, 
you know the kind of philosophy behind swim training I think over the last decade because traditionally it's been a very very high volume relatively low intensity training regimen and you'd swim miles and miles and miles every week you know we used to do 60 60 kilometers a week plus you know some weeks would go up to 100 if we were doing you know some pre-season camps or whatever you know now a lot of the guys are down kind of 35 45k that's a substantial reduction so I think there there is a wee bit of shift happening um, and I think with that swimmers are also carrying on their careers a bit longer you know they're able to swim into you know late 20s early 30s which again has only kind of recently been happening um, I mean there's a Brazilian guy for example looks like action man Nick Santos a guy I know well who is you know world champion at 40 <laughs> I mean he's a real outlier but um, yeah, I think because you're in, you know, really good nick, really good shape, body composition's usually really, really low just due to the volume you're doing in the water. But as I say, Petey's kind of, I guess, been a wee bit of a pioneer in that shift and being much bigger. Because, yeah, he's, he's so jacked. <laughs> yeah. One other thing that I looked at in swimming, and I had a an inkling about this before, but I didn't really know, was around the mental health aspect and not necessarily the damage that swimming does. Maybe it's the type of person that goes into that sport that you have to be to go into that sport and maybe it goes hand in hand with the way that the, the brain works. I don't know if you know any more about that. Michael Phelps come out, I mean, what's he, ADHD? Yeah. I don't know if it was Asperger's as well. Yeah. Superpowers, some might say of the brain mm -hmm. but it feels like in order to be in that space you need to be different okay yeah. because of what's required anything like that with you like how was the loneliness in the pool or the mental aspect were you different because i know adam Petey's come out and mentioned stuff i don't know whether that's to do with swimming as well yeah it's it's, it's a really tough sport it is it's a long long time you're spending alone in the water and it it's it's years and years to kind of build the athletic profile you need to be able to perform on that level. I think it for you know from my own experiences, mine I kind of ran into a bit of trouble because my you know kind of athletic identity just consumed everyone else, and I was fully obsessed with trying to win, trying to break a world record, trying to win a gold, and it just it it made me become really 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 analytical of you know things that should be relatively mundane and and that was kind of started with being you know too analytical with training performances and racing and then it just kind of spilled into into everything else um I, th I think within reason that is a, a kind of natural response because you're putting so much into it. You're so invested into that process of trying to become Olympic champion or world champion that when you come so close to it, you know, it hurts. It really hurts like it does <clears throat> for any athlete in any sport when you get that close. And I think, yeah, my, my issue was just becoming obsessive and, and I stopped enjoying it. It, it went from a hobby to a passion to a job to an obsession and when it got to that level you know I wasn't enjoying the process of of developing of trying to improve anymore and that's when I ran into some real trouble and I just felt like I had to step away from 
that whole environment in order to kind of fix myself, which was really tough to take because ultimately I didn't want to leave sport. You know, I was exactly where I wanted to be. But, you know, there were periods where I was ranked number one in the world and I would be just really unhappy and, and really analytical and just not happy with the level that I was at. And I was I was ranked number one in the world. Those, I was right where I wanted to be, but yeah. I, I couldn't kind of switch that element off. Um, and, yeah, it just became a bit of a pressure cooker and, you know, ultimately that's that's why I left left the sport. You know, the kind of nail in the coffin for me was the Olympic trials for, for Rio. I mean, I wasn't healthy psychologically, you know, or physically. I was, you know, carrying a bit of a back injury. I wasn't in shape. If I had been, you know, 100%, I would have been, you know, around the same performances from London four years previously, which were still podium level times in Rio. They were still winning Olympic medals. So all I had to do was repeat a time that I'd done on four, five, six occasions. But I just, as I say, I, I wasn't healthy, but I, I kind of felt like I needed I needed that, you know, harsh defeat in order to, to give me um, just that, you know, conclusive feedback that it's time to walk away from this. It's time to close the door on it. And that's what I did. And, you know, I remember that walking down poolside after missing the team finishing that race and felt like I was attending my own funeral <laughs> but, but I mean that's where a kind of second life started I guess without being you know too dramatic about it it was I've had great fun since then and uh, you know I guess pretty lucky to try and experience a couple of different careers now Quality sleep is essential that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, you're pretty switched on now. Not that you weren't before, but you, you're understanding your mindset around that, which I'd love to get onto. But what age was it that you retired? Uh, 27. I mean, 27. It's 27 officially, <laughs> 26. <laughs> yeah. 26 are through the towel in, really. Yeah. So young. Like, in the grand scheme of any, yeah. even sport, that's a, a very young... I was, wasn't aware that the prime of swimming was so young and the outlier is a 40-year-old. Um, is he still doing it, the Brazilian? Yeah. Is he? <laughs> He's the most ripped guy you've yeah. ever seen in your life. <laughs> I hate people like that. I hate them. Was there any mental help any prep as part of the funding because there's, there's a, an investment in that isn't there and I said I'm thinking back then I know a lot's changed when I played sport there was zero psychological 
help. It was like, just fucking get back in the line. A lot's changed. What, for you, in a sport that probably, for the reasons we've just touched on, need it most? Yeah, there was. There was. And, uh, you know, again, I was really lucky. I was I was really well supported. It's a really interesting conversation because things have really changed in British sport over the last 10 years as far as, you know, mental health goes and the conversation around that. When I kind of came forward and asked for help, you know, there was a real clamouring to offer that. It was it, There was so much support available, which was amazing. You know, and I, and I think, you know, over that kind of few years period around, you know, just after the Olympic Games, there was quite a lot happening. I don't know if you remember the um, British cycling story. I mean, that all broke shortly after that. There was a lot of athletes coming forward saying, you know, really struggling, need a bit of help. There's not enough there. The support was there, but you had you had to go and seek it out. You had to ask for it, and I think what's been interesting in the last couple of years is that that conversation has evolved so much, and there 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 are now, you know, mitigations in place. There are signposting networks. There are, you know, there's a full framework of support available there, and and I think it's important to acknowledge that because ten years to change all of that in ten years is 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 great. But I think I think it was necessary. There was a real necessary intervention needed, um, because in an Olympic sport, your funding is made and lost on. I mean, for swimmers, one event a year. You know, our kind of British Championships, which acts as the qualifier for whatever the major meet is that summer, whether it's Europeans, Worlds, or Olympics, they happen in April. If you fail to make the team. 90% of the time your funding's cut then and there. And I mean, I, I remember after the Olympic Games, again, was in a really good position physically, was swimming really well, faster in training than I was beforehand. I tore a tendon in my bicep, uh, ended up kind of limping through to the world champs, wasn't really fit, finished fourth, you know, was gutted, but I knew that physically I was more than capable of standing on the top of the podium. And then the letter comes through, or we're, we're reviewing your funding. So three months ago, I was ranked number one in the world. I just got injured. I'm Savage. fine. Mm. So, I mean, and, and those stories are very, very common, especially in swimming. Um, so so that's tough. And I think that, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. It's, it's environmental, isn't it? It's, you know, the environment you're in leads to the, habitual behaviours that you elicit which leads to potential downfalls mm. and I think they're all really closely linked I think we could be doing more to to kind of support especially older athletes you know that kind of early mid late 20s um, there's very little support if you're not right at the sharp end of, of the sport when you've given so many years yeah. as well and so close. The mental thing is really interesting, just to go a little bit further on that, because you, I'm going to look down at the number again, 12 hundredths <laughs> of a second, you know, like the mental part to sport as a whole. Again, if it wasn't there and it is now, I suppose it's the the appetite of young athletes now, they want to consume it, I suppose. But if it wasn't there and it comes when you're 23, 24 try to change that mind and do it by yourself I look back on my I wish that I had it at the time I'm, I say it wasn't there I think it was there a little bit but it wasn't really there you know the op option was there it's like I ain't soft 
I ain't going down that route. But my mind is my biggest enemy even now. Like it's just all just trying to get it focused and get it in line. I think if I can do that or if I had that, I would have been, I reckon it's a big step. I reckon 40% better performance. My mind was that out of shape. I know you speak about like the importance of the mind and how much work you've put into that even after. One of the examples I've been chatting about recently is I'm a big basketball fan. And did you watch the last dance? I I did watch the last dance. Brilliant, wasn't it? So my team now is, I mean, it's hard not to follow LeBron. Mm. LeBron's a king. But I really like um, Portland, Damian Lillard. Brilliant player. The most clutch player maybe ever. But there's a really interesting conversation there because, you know, there's a constant debate in basketball about who's the greatest of all time. Is it LeBron or is it Jordan? And I watched The Last Dance and I thought, see if that's the personality you need to be to win everything. I wouldn't want it. Mm. I would rather be a LeBron who seems, you know, this is based on just the content that I see, but he seems like a really inclusive leader. He seems to be, you know, soft is probably the wrong word, but a bit more relaxed and a bit more engaging. Whereas Jordan, I feel like, Again, just from the snapshot of that series, uh, quite a sharp character, you know, obviously wasn't scared of confrontation. And that doesn't that personality doesn't really resonate with me. But I think it's a good example that, you know, you can do both. And I think I always kind of question myself because uh, I guess similar to you, I always, I always knew I had a strong mindset. I always knew I wanted to be the best. But it would be with a caveat of an Olympic medal would be great. Mm. I'd love gold, but an Olympic medal would be great. And you're, you know, you're subconsciously opening the door to being more accepting of um, more results. Mm. And and I do and I do think about that because there's no, you know, I don't I don't know. I want I finished my career with seven major medals six silver and one bronze and I, I genuinely believe there were elements throughout my career where I was ranked world number one during the season and before the majors and I do believe I was capable of winning 100% I was you know a few of them were circumstances injuries and whatnot but there was something missing there there's there's a reason why that that never happened and when you look at the last dance do you think Michael Jordan's that ruthless mentality yeah, because yeah. I, I watched that and it was during COVID, right? And it came on and we all loved it because we had a player at Saracens, famous player, plays for England, Owen Farrell, British and mm. Irish Lions. Dad is Andy Farrell, who coaches Ireland. <clears throat> and I didn't like him. I didn't like the way that he interacted with the players. I didn't like the way that he spoke. And everyone had work-ons, okay? So my big work-ons was catching, passing, tackling, running, like everything. <laughs> everything to be a rugby player was a work-on. For Owen Farrell, his big work-on, hear me out, was how to speak to people more nicely, <laughs> right? And when I was in it at that moment, and maybe, again, this if it was different and I was different, Scotland, we might have won a World Cup, we might have won numerous <laughs> Six Nations. Yes, I got to a level of working physically and pushing myself to the extreme and beyond. I was an overachiever, but mentally, I didn't have it mentally because 
I'd got to that point. I, I was. I just didn't think about. It. I hadn't been brought up in that environment. Uh, I'd never been in that kind of environment. Even though I was at Leicester, we won numerous trophies, and it, and it wasn't me. It wasn't me to be <clears> able to call people out in training and be like, oh, "That's not fucking good enough." Owen, he. I remember one of the games at, at Christmas. He'd just come back from Dubai. I played three games on the bounce, and we'd lost three games. And he came in, all bronzed up off holiday, and he's like, "Fucking not good enough." I'm like, "Hey." <laughs> he's pointing at me right Scotland vice captain pointing at me and he's like it's not fucking good enough he's, he got, and then he starts going around the room and I'm like how has he got the bollocks and like how can how has he got the confidence to do that but he wasn't overconfident it wasn't as if he was walking around like he was the nuts and all over social media and that he was being genuine he was like and I hated it until I stepped away from the game I watched the last dance not that the last dance was the oracle and he had the Michael Jordan in him. And I didn't know what that was. I'd never experienced it before. But not until I'd seen that and watched it and then looked into more stuff. He was like the individual within the team. But he was like performance before anything. I don't want to speak for him. He's got a young family now. But for me, I had other influences that were more important. My mates, my family, my yeah. kids. You know, yes, I do my training. Yes, I do a bit of extras and whatever. Yes, I do a bit of analysis. But then I go and see my family, or then I go and see my mates. And I was making sacrifices, but not a hundred percent. He was making a hundred percent sacrifices to be the best that he could be. And part of that was like, you need to be the best you can be. You need to be. This ain't fucking. And at the point, I, I, it was an uncomfortable situation. Now I come out of it. I, I mean, I, I would never go back and be that person again. But the respect that I understand now, and you got to think his dad's one of the greatest rugby league and union players. Yeah. He's now coaching, you know, it's not by coincidence, is it, yeah. that he's coaching Ireland and they're the number one team. But it is really interesting, that team environment, you have the different mindsets, like fucking bulletproof. Yeah. <laughs> is he though? But he, I think he is. I think he yeah. is a northerner, like bulletproof. And I've not really said that out loud in the public domain. But I think it's more that situation there is more a slight on me than him. And maybe it is that. Like you look at Michael Phelps, for example, you look at these other athletes. I'm trying to think Tiger Woods in his pomp. Yeah. We could go through other individual <clears throat> sports. Usain Bolt's a bit different though, isn't he? Like yeah. he, he didn't really give a shit. Yeah. He was just ultra gifted. <laughs> but maybe it is that kind of yeah, I mean that that was a little bit of a light bulb moment for me watching that Jordan documentary because I'd never really seen that kind of real like verbal ruthlessness within the kind of team within the locker room, um, and it, it just kind of clicked because I think I think it is possible to be a quiet leader though. I think that you know there's there's obviously a lot of um, you know different strategies to to make that work, and I think. You know, within our teams, I certainly tried to be that kind of quiet leader and and kind of lead from example, lead by example. But I would never, I would never be in there, you know, pulling people by the collar, saying that wasn't good enough. But even the coaches, yeah, he'd, he'd call the coaches out. So it'd be like you saying to you, well, you see the tennis players, don't you, as well? Like yeah. some of the tennis players are like that, aren't they? Like they're calling out the umpires, they're calling out yeah. the fucking coaches, the physios. No, it's interesting. That that was another one as well. The um, breaking point, the the tennis show. That was interesting. But again, you know, we we're talking about earlier needing some more characters in swimming. 
Uh, is there any of them apart from Kyrgios that's got a decent story up until mm. becoming a pro? They're also it's nice. It's kind of like the F1. They're all just, you know, come from tens of millions background, support from the family, and, you know, you just walk into a pro career. So it's, um, yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. But, yeah, the, the, the LeBron Jordan one is, is, is so interesting because I think he's... Um, you know, you've got two of the greatest players of all time there and such different leadership styles. Yeah, and maybe it's the moment in time, the social media element that comes with it. I don't even know what I mean when I say that. It's just an obvious... A factor of, yeah, in some degree. Yeah, and that debate will always be LeBron. Who are you then, LeBron or Jordan? LeBron. You are LeBron, you said that, didn't you? Yeah. <sighs> I've, I bought myself a pair of Jordans recently, so I don't know. I do. I mean, it's the old Messi Ronaldo. Yeah. But I went with Messi after he won the World Cup, and the way that he played and in that final, oh, I went. I went with Messi. That was incredible, wasn't it? I don't think there was a, a person on this planet that didn't want him to win that tournament. So it's cool, incredible. But with Jordan, I think I would go with him because it felt like he was the first. Yeah in that space and everything that came out of that but then since the last dance I've gone more LeBron like you I'm easily manipulated <laughs> as well um, the training and I know it's changed or whatever I heard I'm going to call it a horror story you didn't you didn't seem like it was a horror story but pushing yourself to a limit which was beyond a limit like what <laughs> is that is that part of swimming trying to get a max heart rate I mean that was an interesting time. I think so. So that was that was just after the Olympics. And I which was at, one, which one? Uh, twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. So, so that was kind of probably the best period of of my career, or well, definitely the best period of my career. And we we were using this Versa climber. Have you ever used that? Yeah. We used to do fat burner. Fat, and the heavier you are, the worse it is. Oh, I'm telling you. It's, oh, it's awful. Awful. So, um, you know, we had the kind of Bluetooth monitors on and we, we were doing kind of all-out intervals on it. And it's basically just an opportunity twice a week where you would absolutely bury yourself. And it's just, you know, it's you against yourself, but, you know, we're talking about leadership earlier. Everyone wanted to have the highest lactate or the highest heart rate or travel the furthest in the interval time. Um, and, you know, that zone... That area where you are 100% all in was my favourite place to be. I absolutely loved it. And this particular day, uh, it was actually just after I'd come back from this tendon injury, which was just before the World Championships in 2013. So there was a lot of frustration there because I felt like that was my big opportunity to become world champ. So in my head, I was like, I'm coming back with a vengeance. And doing these all-out intervals... Yeah, I can see my heart rate ticking up to my maximum, which at the time was 191. And I'm literally closing my eyes, gritting my teeth, going hell for leather. And then all of a sudden, I felt like someone had stopped time and taken my heart into their hands and just crushed it and then let it go again, like, like you would a tennis ball or something. And I remember kind of reacting to it, looking up, my heart rate was throwing some crazy numbers out. It was like 230, you know, 65, and it was jumping from extreme to extreme. And I came off, and I just remember the <laughs> S&C coach kind of looking at me with panic in his eyes, who's now a good friend of mine. And um, 
I started getting numbness in my face, pins and needles in my tongue, my vision was going all blurry. Um, so I'm kind of just staggering off and I, I knew straight away something was something was definitely wrong. Uh, so I kind of lay down and just said to the coach, said, you, you need to get a doctor just now because something's, something's not right. Bring the fucking defibrillator in. Yeah, so I kind of came round a little bit. Things calmed down a little bit. I felt like my, you know, I was getting really slow, laboured heartbeats and then it felt like it was racing at times. And this is, you know probably a red flag at the time uh, I just assumed that I was I just reached my limit that session I just thought that was a bit strange you know something's not right there but I thought I'd pulled a muscle in my rib cage or something like that so I went home for a few hours and tried to sleep it off I came back to the pool for the afternoon session and I was literally 30 seconds into a warm-up I just started loosening off and my heart felt like it was beating out my chest I said, no, this definitely isn't right. So, um, you know, the, the coaches kind of carted me up to the docks, put the defibrillator on, and straight away said, you need to go to A&E, your heart's in an irregular rhythm, an irregular beating pattern. So, you know, I, I went straight down to the hospital. It was 15 minutes drive away. You know, the session's still going on. So I get into the hospital and, <clears throat> you know, I'm put in the cardiac ward. There was a really bad accident that day. So, I mean, there was some horrendous cases coming in. You know, guys were coming in literally screaming in pain. They'd, there was a, a yeah a really bad pile-up on the motorway just outside Somerset. And, um, yeah, basically I was just kind of sat there for a few hours. The doc came in and he said, look, we need to reverse this really quite quickly because we can't allow... Uh, your heart to settle in that irregular beat so um, I was put to sleep uh, they just kind of slow your heart rate right down to the point where they can really accurately pinpoint you know the beating pattern on your ECG and then they just give you a dunt with <laughs> the defibrillator and yeah I, I came back around the doctor said it was a success I'd have to go for follow-ups obviously um the following day I went to see a cardiologist and he said he'd only it's quite common in males over 80 <laughs> so that was a bit of a, a bit of a red flag and he said he'd only ever seen it in two athletes uh, ever before in his career and so I mean I was monitored and things and you know I was tested like there was no tomorrow and he said look I can't explain it it's just an acute episode um, but there's a couple, there are a couple of parameters. If if your heart rate's in that irregular pattern for more than twenty four hours, you can't resume a career in sport. Full stop. And the second thing was, if it happened again, if there was a reoccurrence again, I would have to retire on the spot because it was too dangerous. Um, and hand on heart, my only reaction to that was pride. I was like, I've done it. <laughs> completed <laughs> by how many beats yeah <laughs> so by I mean, 20%. That was, yeah um so, but that was a crazy period because within 48 hours of that happening i was back training mm. and it was like everything was normal again um but yeah i mean for a long time i took a lot of pride in that which was probably a bit worrying that you know that was the kind of area that i loved to be in the most and yeah, it was just 
pushing it too much. So thankfully, it's never happened again. Well, thankfully. <laughs> and you, have you been on the Versa Climber since? Or never. Are you, yeah, I was going to say, you got <laughs> horrors. But that's the mindset, right? As in people, they listen to this and you're trying to get over your max heart rate, hear that, and then what, you're two days later and you're back? Yeah. I mean, at that moment in time, that part of my career, I'd have done... I'd have, if you'd have told me I had to do that again the next week, but I'd be world champ, I'd have done it. Yeah. No doubts. No doubts. That's not normal. That isn't normal. What about the pressure being world number one? And you're going into the Commonwealth in 2014... It's in Glasgow. Were you the flag bearer? Was it the flag? I was going to say the torch. You were involved in part of it because I yeah. remember Sir Chris Hoy and Billy Connolly. Yeah. Sir Billy Connolly. What a f- <laughs> bloody legend oh. he is. Um, so a twofold question. Firstly, we'll keep it light. What was it like? We know, Sir Chris Hoy. We love him. We've had him on the rugby pod before. <laughs> Sir Billy Connolly spent a bit of time with him, 30 seconds in Hong Kong at a Doddy Weir dinner. Back in 2019, it was just, oh, I mean, brilliant. he... Lucky man oh, to meet him. Amazing. Like, did you, did you spend much time with him? So, I mean, that was, I mean, yeah, I was named as an ambassador of the Games alongside Sir Billy, Sir Chris. What would his event been, Sir Billy? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever he wants. The big one, yeah. Cyclist. <laughs> uh, who else was there? Uh, well, Usain Bolt was an ambassador and um, Dame Jess Ennis Hill at the time. And I honestly remember thinking at the time, like, what am I doing in this room with these people? It was crazy. Um, so I mean, that that was just it was um it was amazing. It was obviously a real, real privilege because it felt like there was a real opportunity to have a bit of a fairy tale moment for for me for my career because the the games were held in. Toll Cross, which was the pool I grew up training in, that was kind of where I decided that I wanted to do this as a career. So obviously at the time I had no idea that I would be back there for an event like Commonwealth Games. So I mean, yeah, get getting to spend a bit of time with you know Sir Chris and his family and the other ambassadors was like incredible and and really really special for you know my old man as well and the rest of my family because they they're all huge sports nuts so. Mm. You know, to be in people like that's company was was pretty special. What really was, cool. What was Bill, Billy Connolly like? Was he a joke or quite? He's quite quiet, isn't he? Very, mm. yeah, very. But I remember, um, you know, with uh, Sir Chris, and you know, we were just chatting about training, and you, you know, we were actually the conversation got on to weights. We we're talking about the kind of weights we were lifting. <laughs> and I remember being in the gym with him once in Edinburgh. Um, and he was warming up. This wasn't his top set. He was warming up with a set of six at one sixty back squat. I mean, I couldn't have lifted that half a rep. I couldn't have. I couldn't have taken that off the mm. rack at the time. I mean, his quads were uh, oh. enormous. Yeah, enormous. But he's he's a man who really liked to you know be in the hot locker during training as well. Mm. Used to really really push it on um, on the bike. But yeah, really really cool. Uh, but yeah, that that was as I say. I thought it was going to be a bit of a fairy tale, you know, the Commonwealth Games, hometown, home pool, ambassador for the games. <laughs> you know, had my heart set on breaking this world record, which was what at the time. So at the time, it was uh, two minutes seven seconds point three. And what was the quickest you'd been up until that point? 
2 minutes 7.4 so it was a tenth of a second shy of it and you know so obviously in that period between the, the games in London and the games in Glasgow two years the whole training programme and your split times and your events and your targets and training every day was about swimming faster than that time and we were we were there relatively we were on track there was a couple of injuries you fall off it but we got back on and before the Commonwealth Games was kind of when I put my hands up and said I'm not really healthy here I need a bit of support psychologically and I really tried to kind of stay in control of everything until I got that out of the way and I just couldn't do it I just it got to a level where I, I needed help and I, and I kind of needed to get it then and there and so the mindset kind of shifted there between you know I need to tr- I need to get healthy but I know I can still do this I know I can still compete and you know fast forward to the games themselves and I remember being in the call room in the holding pen, effectively, with the seven other guys that were about to come out for the final. And I just remember sitting there, kind of scanning the room, and I just thought I would rather be anywhere in the world than here right now, because I knew I wasn't going to be at my best, and I just I didn't want to be there at all. And I remember kind of feeling, right before I went out, kind of trying to take stock, because, I mean, you know yourself, before... You know, a big match, there is no better feeling than that adrenaline rush you get. That that buzz, the pre-match nerves, it's unbeatable. Mm. Especially when you know the prep's done and you're in good form. But when the coin's flipped and you know you're not healthy and no one else in that room knows what's been going on with your training, with your head, with anything, nobody knows your preparation. But I knew there was no way I was going to perform to my best there. And I just like there was just nothing there. I could I could not physically get I couldn't emotionally get up for that race. And I remember the doors opening, and you know it was a great crowd, and I had all my friends and family there. And I just thought, let's just let's just do the best we can and get up the road here. And that was that was brutal because that was my opportunity to do something really cool. You know, being from Glasgow in that environment, it was. It was an amazing time to be involved in an in, in Olympic sport and there was no one from Glasgow that went from London on to Commonwealth Games that, that had a medal. So, I mean, I had so much support. And I remember one one really clear error I made. I mean, this is, this is kind of on me. This, is, this, was, this was my fault. But I remember about two weeks before the Games and it was kind of the last big media day and... I kept getting asked about this world record time and I religiously bounced over the question every time because I didn't want to draw any attention to it. And I remember getting asked in this last media day, I can't remember the exact context, but it was, are you going to are you gonna break the world record? And I just remember saying, well, you know, the world record is 207.3 and my best time is 207.4, so... Of course I'm going to go for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tenth of a second. I would hope to improve regardless of what the marker is. I'm training to improve and to get better. And the next day, the headlines on the Scottish papers and BBC Sport was Jameson vows to break world records. No and, pressure. And I just thought, shit, <laughs> what have I done? 
and it was just it was a slip of the tongue you know it was it was printed out of context and it was just at that moment when I read that everything kind of all the circumstances just kind of the dam kind of started breaking uh, started cracking and it was you know it was tough to kind of keep it together over that period but Look, I mean, we came through it. Ended up with another silver from a Commonwealth Games. But that's you, so you got in, <clears throat> in that race specifically. Yeah, finished second. But that's got what, another silver. But I, it's when you're listening to you speak, it's like you go end of the world. <laughs> yeah, but, and you know, I'll be 100 percent honest with you. I remember the race. I remember the lead up to that off the yeah. back of London. Like we're at home, we watch like the big events and stuff. And I do remember it, and I remember seeing you set like I mentioned knowing you from a few years back you didn't know me but I knew you and the pressure and it's yeah. really interesting I know it's probably now it's clearer than ever right because you've had time to reflect you're older you've gone through the process of becoming healthy and getting the mind stronger but that's I, I, I'd be the same I'd be one of those I reckon not now fucking razor sharp now <laughs> bulletproof but it is when you mentioned that moment you know when you're on and rugby, a collision sport, a contact sport. And I would go into games. And because I wasn't a naturally gifted athlete, I had to be 100% on. And the feeling of going out into a stadium and you know, you just know that you're on. Because you're not thinking about anything else. It's really hard to put into words. Maybe one day I'll be able to do it. But the feeling of feeling alive that no one will feel. So unless it's in you've a flow it. state, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've never had it since, obviously, but I, I know what it's like. But then I know at the back end of my career, where when you're thinking about your body and you're thinking about, and you know that you're not quite right, and you're second guessing, and it's oh, should I be here? I have you know you've not trained as much, and you're thinking about, and that's when you know the, the, yeah. the time is up. But I've never been in that experience where you're at home, you're in the pool that you grew up like yeah. as in it's a dream scenario moment right yeah well it really was but all you know up until that point the pressure was 90 percent self-inflicted mm. but that's the mind though. yeah but, but i was okay with that mm. it was just that you know it was at that time when again because any pressure that came before that was welcomed because you can just re you know you just rephrase that as support you know there was so many people kind of willingness to do well and which is an amazing position to be in and could definitely look myself in the mirror and say well I've done everything possible so whatever result I get here is the one that you know hopefully I'm due but at that moment when I knew I wasn't in shape that's when it starts affecting you because there's already cracks there isn't there so yeah I mean at the time it did feel like the end of the world it was it was horrible but you know Looking back now, it's it was another silver at a major event. It was, you know, to be that close to my best times and my you know best performances, despite everything else going on, was was also, you know, it's a good it's a good effort. Yeah, when you're in the pool and all the I imagine the noise, it's just kind of like a white noise in the background. Every time you put your head, you can just kind of hear the screaming. Do you, did you know when you were racing, even though before the race? You weren't quite there, but did you know when you were in the pool that you were swimming a good a good speed? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that one in particular, I was, you know, just ahead at the kind of three-quarter stage, but I'd been quite aggressive over the first half of the race because I knew I kind of had to try and push the pace and 
um, you know, hope that there would be enough of a gap there. So I remember turning it halfway and that was kind of when the doubts start creeping in that, you know, he's too close. He's too close and I've, I've, I'm have i running on empty here. Yeah. <laughs> but the the crowd's an interesting one because, you know, jumping back again at, at, the, at the Olympic Games in London, I mean, that's probably the biggest crowd we'll ever have at a swim event. I think it was 19,500 there. I can't believe nineteen and a half thousand people wanted to watch wanted to watch swimming, but you we had <laughs> we had uh, we got these Beats by Dre headphones. Look cool, eh? Yeah, everyone was wearing them yeah. at the time, weren't they? And it was always a race to see who could get the rarer colours. <laughs> so uh, everyone was going out to the race wearing these. I was thinking, there's no chance I'm putting headphones on. I want to hear every voice in the crowd. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember kind of spotting that. And, you know, when I watch the footage back of the race and you see the doors open and I just walk out and I'm like, <laughs> just because that was probably the one moment in my career where I have had the presence of mind to just take a step back and be like, put 10 years, 10 years of a shift <laughs> to get into this call room. So when you walk out here, just make sure you take a moment to enjoy it. And uh, I mean, I'll never forget that moment because that was absolutely incredible. What do you do with the medal? Are they decent? Uh, yeah, they are. The Olympic ones are really chunky. They're really heavy. Um, I mean, that's done the rounds. After you know, after the games, we're you know doing a lot of kind of club visits and stuff, and meeting a lot of the kids. And the kids are throwing it about, and it's bouncing off of the tiles on every poolside around the UK. <laughs> so it's taking a battering. But yeah, that's um, obviously a special place. I mean, one day I will get all of them framed because mm. I've never really done that. Never kind of got the big ones framed, so you, you know, can kind of uh, relive those memories. I think my old man still looks after that one. But uh, yeah, it's definitely the the chunkier one because the the year after that, um, so the year before, I got a, a silver at the World Championships, which was in Turkey. I remember this um, getting the medal for that, and it was—I mean, it was the most basic thing you've ever seen. Plain black ribbon. It had a um, like a a kind of base, and then an emblem, plastic emblem on the top, and the emblem was plastic. Uh, I remember getting to the airport. One of you know, a little kid was asking for a photo. You know, went to put the medal around his neck, dropped it. And the thing smashed in about fifty pieces. And I'm picking it up, and the the base of the medal had like Pritt stick marks <laughs> on it. I'm thinking, as like that was meant to signify silver at the World Champs. It was honestly it cost less than a pound. That thing, it was appalling. And that was, I mean, spoken about that before, but that was a bit of a moment where it was like, well, it's not really about collecting these medals, is it? It's just about the process of trying to win them that's mm. more important but yeah I don't think I've got that one anymore and if I do it's probably in one of those sandwich bags just all in pieces <laughs> it's a story though it's yeah. a story medal without <laughs> the silver what are the Olympic camps like when you're there and all the other athletes are about are you star spotting are people trying to spot you I mean because you're watching people right it's I imagine I say this because I've been to Bath Uni once to train, but it seems like quite a closed off. You're all in it, but you, you know you look at the shape yeah. of you guys, and 
and the girls and all the different sports and you're all in kind of one spot. But then there's a few celebs in there as well, isn't there? Yeah. Like your bolts and you get your basketball <clears throat> teams in and your American high profiles. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's amazing to see the different shapes and sizes of athletes that come in. I mean, some of the guys, like the, the lifters, power lifters and, um, you know, the shot put guys are monsters. Huge, huge frames. But then the night we came back from, um, I think it, I think it might have been the night after the race that I won silver in London. But I was with a couple of the other British swimmers. By the time we got back to the village, it was quite late. It was you know maybe two o'clock in the morning, um, and the US basketball guys were in, and they'd just finished. Um, so I mean, all of the big superstars were there. Carmelo Anthony, LeBron, all of these guys, and they're like sitting in the you know this huge dining room, it's like an airport hangar, massive unit, um, and LeBron sitting back with his feet on the table with a cigar and stuff like that. And the, but because it was so late, there was hardly anyone there, and you can see all these other athletes coming in, kind of double taking. <laughs> Is that LeBron James sitting there? Um, so yeah, there was there was another morning as well where. You know, I was sitting at the breakfast table and ended up next to, um, you know, Ryan Giggs and just like just as everyone gets in amongst it and kind of sharing stories and experiences and that part of it's so cool. You know, Usain Bolt and Djokovic came in as well, but I think those guys, you know, it was kind of half a day. They would jump in, see the village, experience it, and then leave because, you know, there's a wall. 10 deep surrounding them looking for photos. Oh, really? So, so the other athletes oh, yeah. are all over them? I'll be all over them as well. Yeah. I'll be one of those. <laughs> yeah. LeBron but, with a cigar in his mouth. Yeah. I mean, really, really, really cool memories with, with things like that. But yeah, all the all the kind of top superstars, I don't know where they stay, but it's, they're not in they're not in the village. They just kind of drop in just to experience a bit of it, I think, and then they're kind of shipped off with their security teams. But Oh, it was brilliant, brilliant. And after we finished racing, the swimming's always in the first week of the games, which is perfect because you finish day six or day seven. I mean, I hadn't touched a drop of alcohol in a year plus before that. And then you have nine days after that where you just go hell for leather every night. So, uh, yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant memories. How do you get them moments back? Or are you accepting now that, the, the day's gone and you look back at it with fond memories or do you have moments like we all do in transition, I'll have a word, after sport <laughs> as young men and you mentioned the second life that you have and I saw something with Brian O'Driscoll and AP McCoy, they did a, a really cool doc talking about transition after sport and AP McCoy said it's like I'm not that person anymore, it's like a second life and I see that, I feel that. I'm the same as you. I don't have memorabilia up on the wall. I think I've got my cap on a shelf and I go around some of my mates' house, they've got the shirts and all yeah. these big kind of moments. And I don't because it's like, I feel like that was a different time. It almost feels like it wasn't me. So I, I kind of relate to that. Do, do you have that now you're in this new life? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's definitely still behavioural elements that I still kind of cling on to. Like, I'm still really active. I still train a lot and try and do you know, these weekend warrior competitions and CrossFit and a few other kind of endurance events and things like that. Because I, I feel like I need I need that. I think there is definitely an element for me that 
my identity is still really deeply entrenched in in sport and competing. Yeah, mm. more so training than competing, I would say. But there's there's clarity in the fact that I have these reflections of. Do I think I could have had some better results? Yeah. Do I think that you know I should have made certain decisions earlier, taken a bit more ownership of my training and my approach to training, to recognise things like I had an obsession with being at max heart rates and really enjoying that? Yeah, I should have done something about that earlier, but I mean, who doesn't have reflections like that? Yeah, I know, but with that, you, you think if you were, if the funding was there or they'd gone all in on someone like you, someone else would have picked that up and seen that as a real positive trait. You know, I know hindsight's a great thing, but having the you know, the timing and the luck and the right <clears throat> people around you, and I suppose some of that does come back to the funding and people identifying because, you know, what you were saying there is a crazy trait, but an ultra competitive, you know, not even a one percenter would want to try and get above yeah. their max heart rate on a versa climber. But I, I think that's kind of where there is some clarity and that that's one of the reasons why I still feel really connected to training and sport and, you know, needing to have some outlet to, to train or compete regularly, something to kind of really aim towards in a relatively kind of disciplined approach because I still I still really resonate with that. I still enjoy that process. I mean, I've just taken up... Um, you know, this kind of CrossFit recently. And I mean, there's so many elements to that sport. Like that, You know, there's parts on the gymnastics where you're trying to learn these muscle-up rings and handstand walking. I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure where the athletic prowess lies in walking on your hands, the most useless skill looks in great. a sporting contest. With your shirt off, it, not that I can do it, but I've seen it. It looks great. I mean, I love like going through the process of trying to learn these things. Because, I mean, I'm 34 now. I'm not going to be able to learn these new things for, for much longer. So, I mean, I think now I'm I'm just enjoying it. You know, I think it's, um, you know, it sounds like a bit of a cop-out response, but I think I've, I've got my routines that I'm okay with the fact that I need these things now. There's no point in me beating myself up about the fact that I enjoy training or I need training to be part of my routine. You know, I'm kind of... Uh, beyond giving myself stick for that and looking to find more balance that is that yeah. is my balance Matt, i feel exactly the same that like i always found myself apologizing after rugby that i needed to train and i've got four kids so i had, I had two and then had another two when i retired but without doubt if i train and train hard i've got a watt bike i'd love to do crossfit by the way but i mean you've seen the size of me and my body's wrecked but i've got a watt built bike for swimming i'm built for swimming yeah and i was a swimmer back in the day i was and i tell you you know why i can't swim listen to this you might be able to help me out on this so i have got a perforated eardrum so i need surgery on <laughs> my really? ear yeah so from rugby and then my lad we were just wrestling uh, and he just got me in a headlock and like kind of just a little bit of air went in my ear so i've got half of my eardrum missing and in order to have it fixed, they need to chop your ear off, put it on the table, and they have to take some fascia behind it then to stitch onto the to fix the eardrum. But swimmers or divers have ear problems. So but I've just found I'm getting a custom made earplug which allows me to swim. I love swimming. Like I love the feeling of doing it. And obviously yeah. I'm nineteen not obviously I am, I'm eighteen and a half, nineteen stone. And it goes back to like I've got a watt bike. 
And my, my message is like, why are you training like that on the Watt bike? And I said, if you don't know, then you you won't know. Yeah, we had um, earlier this year, so uh, myself and a few of my mates, all ex-swimmers, we're all 34, 35 now. And one of the lads decided to enter us in this, you know, one of these endurance events. I don't know if you've seen them recently, that High Rocks, like a functional fitness race, about an hour in length, standardised race. They do it all major cities around the world, so... They've been going six, seven years now, so they're starting to build up a real decent calibre at times. One of the boys said, wouldn't it be funny if the four of us got together as a relay team and turned up and broke a world record for it? So that's been providing a bit of direction for us recently. We ended up doing that in Glasgow. So I remember laughing about it with the boys because it was... Ten years later than planned, but we still got that world record in the end. <laughs> you got, what race was it? Was it? It was swimming. Uh, no, it's uh, it's like a functional fitness race. So you do you do like a kilometer rep running, mm. uh, eight rounds of it, and between every k run, there's like a functional fitness. Don't say burpees. Um, yeah. Oh. So burpees, rowing, skierg. Mm. That kind of training is quite trendy now. Yeah. Like a lot of people are into yeah. it and. I had Jay Younger. Um, I don't know if you know who Jay is. One of the strongest guys I've ever seen. Oh <laughs> my golly gosh! All natural, Jay. All natural, and mate, and you know he swears by it. And I've trained with him. I trained with him down in a gym in Leith. It was probably the worst thing that I'd done because uh, again, going back, I got a walk by, get decent scores. The missus can hear me shouting and all that in there. She's like, "Oh, you know, that's my that's my husband in there. Like, isn't he an alpha?" And then I cha- trained with Jay, and oh my god! So we started off. We did three sets. Doesn't sound a lot at all. So it was three sets of a minute on deadlift, and then after you've done your deadlift, you got to do ten burpees. It's like no worries. So I our deadlift twice a week just heavy so about 170 180 kgs i'll do five sets of five i'm quite good at a trap bar deadlift so not the ones where you bent forward like a king prawn <laughs> so i thought ah oh, i'll put 100k on you know like sub maximal so i did the first set of 10 and then the burpees <laughs> and then the second i could barely like as in so i was i didn't even tell i was cheating so i was doing about six and then the burpees and like it was embarrassing and i'm watching him like wha-bam, wha-bam, wha-bam. <laughs> 120 kg smashing the burpees and then we got to a clean and press so i was like yeah not great with the clean my wrist is fucked i've got every excuse under the sun which is legit and he's got i reckon he's got 100 kgs on the bar and again it's 10 clean and press and he is doing shirt off his shirt's off at this point <laughs> it's always off <laughs> massive back like he's got like a turtle shell on his back Wha-bam, down arse to grass back up wha-bam, the press and i have got like a, a medicine ball <laughs> About 15 kgs doing like a quarter squat and pressing it against the wall. I seen him do a video the other day where he did a, a clean with 170k. That's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. But I mean, talk about being, uh, you know, feeling humbled. I had the same experience recently where, you know, I kind of signed up to this uh, CrossFit training camp. I met a couple of really, really good people that are, you know, helping me out with a bit of coaching and some tips and getting started. So I turn up, you know, somebody's obviously mentioned, oh, so here's the here's the ex-Olympian. <laughs> I guess you, you know, all the guys are like, oh, I guess your engine will still be impressive. I was thinking, well, 
I think so, but I don't want to say anything yet. So we do a couple of these workouts. I got absolutely smoked. <laughs> they completely wiped the floor with me. Workout after workout yeah. after workout. I was dead last. Do you still swim? Like, do you ever get in, get in the pool? I always uh, wonder. Never. Never, ever. Never. Ever. I think I've been in an indoor pool two or three times maximum since I finished. Swam in the sea, paddling up and down on holiday. But not. But in an, in, there's something about going into that indoor pool environment. The smell? Just, the smell, the feeling, the memories, it's just... And there's no need for me to go back in that environment. There's too much life out there to experience to go back into that. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah I, just, can, I can see that though. I could I honestly, in terms of exercise, if you gave me a list of a hundred things I could do, swimming would be bottom two or three mm. easily. It's just I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about now? So we're talking about CrossFit, and I've been following some of your stuff. I've seen you with your top off as well. You're looking thick <laughs> as well. That is that's the worry, right? So the missus trains as well. Like she's training to be a PT at the minute, and uh, she's a, a great athlete. I was going to say as well as you, not me. <laughs> and uh, she's like, oh, we'll, we'll go and do a bit of CrossFit. I'm thinking, fucking, all oh, the lads have got the shirts off. There's no chance. I'm not doing it. But I've seen you with your shirt off. You're looking big. Yeah, I'm I'm about ten k heavier now than I was when I swam, but I don't I'm not carrying too much excess, so it's yeah I feel like a completely different person, you know, movement wise and in the gym it feels totally different now. So uh, yeah, so the last couple of years I've been doing some of these endurance events and you know dipping my toe in with things like that. It's been good fun, you know. It's just good to have a goal and a target and quite enjoy kind of dusting off the trainers with some of the other some of my mates ex-athletes and things but uh, I really want to give this CrossFit a crack just now so the Masters category starts at 35 so I think it would be pretty cool if at 35 years old I could go into a new sport and at least do all the movements properly Mm. because some of them are (laughs) pretty tough you know I've just managed to get my ring muscle ups so I can do can get a few of them and a few of the higher skill gymnastics exercises are coming together. But yeah, as I say, I think that that process of just learning new skills is, I still really, really enjoy that. Work-wise, a couple of interesting projects just now. I'm opening a, a kind of fitness studio, kind of like a boutique gym set up in Glasgow just now. So that should be really good fun. And Glasgow's quite an interesting place just now. There's a lot of you know, a real big influx from you know the creative sector the last couple of years. A couple of really big kind of trendy brands moving into Glasgow, acquiring offices there. So I think there is a market for that kind of um, you know super productive, quite quick turnaround, functional fitness class model. Some people, some people still get put off by the barbell. I totally understand if you're kind of, well, I mean, whatever age you are, if you're just interested in health and fitness from a longevity and wellness perspective, you know, I think you'll get the same the same improvement, the same benefits from doing a goblet squat with a kettlebell than you would do with a barbell, and there's way less risk. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we're going to try and fill that little market there because there isn't anything in Glasgow just now that offers that. So that'll be quite good fun and represents an opportunity for me to get into a business that's not involved in swimming because mm. that's, you know, when I when I finish competing, 
um, started a learn to swim business in Glasgow. Uh, we're now kind of Glasgow, Edinburgh, London soon. You know, that's on reflection probably the worst time in history to launch your own business, end of 2018, <laughs> right before the world ended. Mm. Um, but we made it. Um, we made it. And I think, you know, coming out of that period, the demand for after school sport was really, really high. Swimming in particular, because we were one of the last sports to go back. Because we are classed as an external service provider, really, you know, we didn't get the same access to facilities as PE curriculum sports did. So we were one of the last to go back. But that's been really cool to to kind of watch that picture come together. Um, you know, we've got over 2,000 kids a week now coming through the business at different sites. So, you know, it's grown to be a decent size now and... That has been quite a good, uh, quite a good lesson as well, because you know, in a sporting context, if there's an area of your game or your performance that's weak, you go away and work on it four, six, eight weeks. You see some change mm-hmm. in business. <laughs> it's four, six, eight, twelve months before you see, uh, you know, effective change. So, uh, you know, that's been a lesson in patience and um, you know resilience in a different context. But that's 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 been great fun. We've launched our own kind of awards scheme there, our own pathway, which has got a bit of a connection to my own experience in sport. We've got these little wellbeing awards where we're kind of you know recognising and awarding uh, you know just basic kind of social skills like sportsmanship and curiosity and just introducing language around wellbeing and positive mental health around these really young kids. So you know that's quite cool to kind of see a thread from. You know, my own experience, my own career kind of coming into, uh, you know, what's forming part of the ethos for the business. Well, there's no better person to do it with your experiences and Scotland needs it as well with, uh, again, just not to throw mud at the country that we live in and absolutely love, but the obesity, the social element with kids and the lack of training and opportunity. Have the government got behind or anything like um, that. So, I mean, we we've kind of we've tried to go down uh, a bit more of a private route. Mm. You know, initially we did start in council facilities, but it was really really challenging. Um, and I think over the next couple of years, because of the circumstances that you know the pandemic presented us with, a lot of these council facilities will be closing. Swimming as a sport is in a bit of trouble in terms of the UK because. You know, a swimming pool is a bit of a financial black hole to run. I mean, as an example, I know of one pool that would usually be 70, 80 grand a year to maintain it, you know, temperature, chemicals, environment. Uh, and, you know, this year it's going to be north of 200. So even for external let providers like us, you know, increasing our hourly rate or our, um, you know, contractual fees to them, it's not going to make a dent in that shortfall. So there's going to need to be. I know there was some support announced for leisure centres and pools in the, you know, the budget recently, but it's nowhere near enough to keep these places open. So, um, yeah, swimming swimming is in a bit of a tight spot over the next couple of years. I think it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. But, you know, I'm hopefully trying to position ourselves that we can be in a position to, you know, support that as much as possible. It's crazy. People like you who are doing that. Yes, as a business element, but also we mentioned. The, the kids and their future not to become Olympic swimmers but the opportunity to train and I'm not being political here albeit it might sound 
political with the coronation. That's not political, is it? They're the royal family, so they're not allowed to be political. But you know where I'm going with this, the amount of money spent on that. And me and Goody were chatting about it on the rugby pod that we do, and he's like, well, the money that it makes for um, through tourism and stuff like that for the country. I was like, yeah, but that, you know, they could have went a little bit lighter on it and, yeah. and put the money back into the services and stuff like this. But anyway, I don't, don't answer that. What is, <laughs> so it's the Michael Jameson Academy. Yeah. Right. And that's the swimming part to it because one, you are, we follow each other on social media, but you're, you're private. You're not, you've not gone out to the masses, have you? <laughs> or yeah. not? It's, Yours um, personal. You're not into the social media stuff because you'll have to be once you start pushing, pushing the business. Yeah. No, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think initially there, you know, there was a, a purpose behind kind of putting the name on the door because a lot of the parents of the kids that are coming are of similar age to myself. So, you know, there was that connection to um, to the sport. So, uh, you know, I think these stories are getting pretty old now. So I think sooner or later we're going to have to take <laughs> take that name off the off the door and rebrand. But no, nah, it's going really well. It's it's. Um, it has been really good fun actually because the last kind of 18 months I've been you know pretty much fully immersed in it and um, you know basically made every mistake in the book and then you come out the other side and you find a way to, to make it work so it's yeah it's going really well thankfully and um, yeah as I say hopefully we can kind of position ourselves to help plug a gap that is inevitably coming when you know facility closures happen over the coming years in, in, in leisure centres around the country. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people find that? Because there there is a big Scottish contingent <laughs> that listen to this. Yeah, so um the best place is just to go to mjswimacademy.com and all the information on all of our sites around Glasgow, Edinburgh, West Lothian, a couple of new ones hopefully coming online uh, over the remainder of this year, um, are there. And we've just launched our kind of new awards pathway where we're kind of really focused on you know, just building a real strong rapport with the kids. Our class ratios are a lot smaller than the competition um, or other, you know, other providers in the space. And I think that's just, again, a little thread from my own career, just recognising how important it is to, um, you know, kind of, as you said, we're, we're not looking for the next Olympic medalist. We're just looking to build, you know, emotionally robust kids who can be safe in the water and enjoy their sport. And if at that point it triggers an enthusiasm or a hobby, you know, then it's a real success. Yeah, that's class. And what about you, Jim? You may as well on here. There'll be a few people that might be thinking, <laughs> right, I want in. They're going to see some pictures of you. Yeah, no, we're, uh, we're, we're hopefully opening very soon. Uh, we should be a few weeks away now. Uh, so the gym is called Space Movement and Wellness. Um, and again, if you just search for Space uh, Space Glasgow on Instagram or online, you can you can uh, get a bit of an introduction to the class concepts and and what we're trying to achieve there. And um, yeah, we'll need to get you down for for a session as soon as we get Tops the doors on. open. Tops on. Tops on. <laughs> Tops on. Please. I'm actually all right at the minute. I'm yeah. I'm leaner than I've been for a while, and I'm str- <laughs> humbly I'm stronger than I've ever been. But that might not come across if we're doing CrossFit. <laughs> uh, Michael Jameson, absolutely loved it, mate. Class act, genuinely. Love oh, the fact thank that you, you made so the much for having me. And we'll do it again soon. Cheers, thanks. Cheers.